now. It's been, let's see, four or five months, I think. Four or five weird lockdowny months between episode four of the lockdown version of Two Minute Stories and episode five, which is the last one. The last one of the lockdown has been sitting there waiting to be edited for four or five months. And I like to think that that is a, uh, an indication of the weirdness of the lockdown as opposed to my, uh, my workflow. <laughs> it's been sitting there waiting, interviews waiting to be edited whilst I wrote a PhD thesis and edited a documentary, took a documentary to film festival in Italy during lockdown <laughs> while I wrote screenplay, wrote short stories, wrote novels, been sitting there calling at me saying, edit me, edit me. And at least one of the participants saying, oh, Chris, when are you going to edit the episode that I'm a part of? And uh, so finally I had to do it. <laughs> and here it is, the fifth episode, long awaited fifth episode of Two Minute Stories in Lockdown. Um, <laughs> apologies. What a weird time. Eh? like a six-month hole in time. A six-month-long lacuna is opened up. And it's not closed yet, is it? You think it's going to close, and then the lockdown's extended. You think the isolation is ending, and then it continues. It's a strange time. I managed to escape to a film festival on the eastern coast on Italy's eastern coast, the Bellaria Film Festival 2020, I made a documentary about a school for Karen refugees in Thailand. And I took it to that film festival in at the end of September. I managed to get away. I landed into Florence. I had a couple of days in Florence looking around at the, at the Renaissance paintings, staying in a hostel for 11 euros a night, in which the courtyard had been designed by Le by Leonardo da Vinci, for real. Da Vinci designed the courtyard of this youth hostel. Florence is a crazy place, and I sauntered around Florence, and it was it was kind of empty. The most beautiful place you could possibly imagine seeing, full of these world heritage buildings, and these art galleries housing Caravaggio and Michelangelo and da Vinci, and there was almost no one there. It was calm and it was quiet. And I stood by the bank of the Arno and I walked over the Ponte Vecchio and I spoke zero Italian. <laughs> and I caught a train across the spine of the country to Bellaria to an empty beach town. Empty beach town. My hotel on the beach was the only one open. A strip of hotels all closed and a beach full of the empty bases where beach umbrellas would usually be. And this calm, flat, blue ocean. Nobody there except a few locals and a few filmmakers and film festival staff. And we had this strange, half-empty film festival documentary festival, watching films about 
the Italian fishing industry and transsexuality in Nazi Germany. And, and I, I showed a film about refugees from Karen State around the Burma-Thailand border. And we had dinner together and we talked about the state of the world and the state of the film industry. And we finished the festival with a dinner in which the guest of honour was the Italian actress Sandra Milo, muse of Fellini. She's 87. She was there looking all of 73 in, uh, in film star glow. And we listened to her speak in Italian and I understood not a word. <laughs> we went out and dinnered together. I hung out with other young trying to be up and coming film documentary filmmakers and we talked about how to get work done and how to get funding and it rained it rained like anything and we got soaked and and then i went back to florence airport guided into a tent outside of the airport with um italian military holding submachine guns politely guiding you in where your body was scanned for signs of the virus and your temperature taken. And I flew back to Manchester just in time for a new spike for university classes all to be moving online. Now we're into tier three. And here we are. And when's it going to stop? Nobody knows. As soon as people start gathering together again, especially young people, you know, freshers, new to university, trying to meet people that will be their friends for the rest of their lives. Maybe they'll meet their wives and husbands. That happens in the first year of university. They're just trying to live normal lives. And they can't do it. We can't do it. It's a strange time. Who have we got on the show? In this, what is sure to be the final even though it lagged so much from the others. The final episode, we've got Vicky Morris, poet, award-winning poet Vicky Morris, and award-winning novelist Monique Roffey. Vicky Morris is a poet, editor, and creative educator based in Sheffield. She's the founder of the Hive Young Writers Project based in South Yorkshire. The project has produced award-winning young writers, including winners of the New Poets Prize, the Young Northern Writers Award, Foil Young Poets, and the BBC Young Writer of the Year one of whom appeared on the on this show in the Sheaf special, Georgie Woodhead. She was excellent. You can go back and listen to her interview and her poetry in that episode. Vicky, Vicky Morris herself, won a Northern Writers Award in 2014. And in 2019, she won the Sarah Nolte Award for Creativity for her impact in the region. She's currently an Arvon Jerwood poetry mentee. And she just won the 2020 Aurora Prize for Poetry. I was shortlisted for that too for short fiction, but I didn't win. She did. Damn her. And Monique Roffey is our second guest. Monique Roffey is the author of seven books. The White Woman on the Green Bicycle was shortlisted for the Orange Prize in 2010. Archipelago won the OCM BOCAS Award for Caribbean Literature in 2013. And House of Ashes was shortlisted for the Costa Fiction Award in 2015. And her seventh book, which was released in the COVID times, and we will discuss that in the interview, it's called The Mermaid of Black Conch. Uh, it was published in April 2020. And it's also drawn acclaim 
and attention from people like Bernardine Evaristo. So there we go. We've got a couple of award winners to talk about the writing life. And these interviews were done now. They're like a little time capsule. They were done at the start of lockdown. They were done back in ooh, April, May, possibly May, early May, late April. So they're going to be talking about life at that time. And we didn't know how long it was going to go on for. It's interesting to look back, see what we were thinking at that time when we were all dealing with it, when it was all new. When people were more, more fearing for their lives, I think, as opposed to fearing quite so much for their sanity, <laughs> their happiness and their connectivity. Fearing for that too, of course. Well, what do you think? We'll look back and see how it sounds. And let's hear from Vicky. Wish you were here after Lavinia Greenlaw. Dearest, lockdown is lovely this time of year. The birds bring gifts of song. When we see a sky filled with scurred wings, a door flies open in our chests. In gardens we see flashes of stoats and rabbits. Like Chernobyl, it didn't take them long to move back in. Almost as if they've been waiting for us to go. Hey ho, we keep busy, order in, any flavour of boredom or fear, with one click. And there are new hobbies too. Armchair epidemiology is really big. And curtain twitching is practically Olympic. In the parks, they're taking the benches away and send drones to shame us. But on good days, people still throw smiles from a distance. We look up when a ghost plane chalks the blue. The food here is mostly okay. All that is flower-based, the body of Christ. We drink the wine, our hair grows long. Windows are the new doors and handles are best left as decoration. We rub and rub but find no genies in them. Nobody here likes mint green but we honour all who wear it. Sometimes we pray together from separate porches, clean hands in clapped prayer. Schooling, it's not what it was. I've learnt pestilence is the collective noun for people. And on the TV they say, the more bricks we take to keep building this place, the harder it will be to return home. But still, as I say, it's not all bad. We do our best to live by the unknown. In truth, how we've always lived. But here, it is sacred. The uncertainty of science its lack of a final, unmutated promise. Here, everyone is a doll in their own doll's house. All of us waiting for our gods to lift us out. Yeah, so I wrote the piece, uh, teaching a workshop online with Hive Young Writers, quite a while ago now, it's but. God, isn't it funny how time is going? Uh, it was on the 4th of April and uh, yeah, I was doing a poetry workshop and we looked at a couple of poems. One of them was uh, Lavinia Greenlaw's um, Love from a Foreign City and the other one was 
a Martian sends a postcard by Craig Rain, and we were looking at kind of looking at what we're going through right now in a kind of slightly alien. Imagine if we were telling somebody who wasn't here, kind of, you know, who maybe passed on what the world was like right now. So it kind of came out of, uh, which is one way of looking at the situation right now, because it is so odd. It's difficult to look at it through the usual lens that we look at everything through. You've got to change the, the glasses, haven't you? How did, how did that workshop go? Yeah, it was really good. I, I mean, I, I feel very lucky to work with young uh, parrots who are really talented and I think young people are really good at being immediate and getting to the heart of something. And yeah, it was a really good workshop. We got some great poems out of it. And I think once young people realise that uh, they can kind of get rid of some of the restraints that they've experienced at school and through formal education and, you know, look at the world in the way they look at the world and, and be themselves through the writing. I think that's when you there's, there's a real power. Um, they haven't got as many hang-ups as, as adults. They're kind of a bit more um, direct and, yeah. You're the, you're the founder of High Young Writers, is that right? Yeah, it's, um, we're uh, South Yorkshire-based um, and we run groups and uh, projects in Sheffield, Barnsley, Doncaster and Rotherham. What, in what inspired the formation of that? Um, well, I've worked uh, with young writers before that for about eight years um, in, in doing a similar sort of network in South Yorkshire. Um, I kind of had an idea at, at how something like that could run and be successful. It's very passionate about um, supporting younger people to become writers and, you know, and kind of evening, evening the playing field a little bit for mm. maybe young people who don't want to go to university or from different backgrounds um and you know having done some of that work and seeing how it could uh you know how I could bring something like that together it seemed like the next thing to have a go at we've been going since 2016 um the as I said the network's been going for longer than that we've got some really really talented young writers and um what I love about it though it's not just about uh you know the next big Thing in writing it really is for everybody whether that's just hobby or that's young people really wanting to become writers and that's what's really great about it like you know an open mic will have everybody there you know every walk of life every interest um and that's really important that it has that but in terms of sort of you know uh prestigious success we've had uh, young uh, people win um things like the foil young poet of the year um the Northern Write the Young Northern Writers Award, um, various competitions, the New Poets Prize. Uh, so that's been really great because I think a lot of things happen in London or or and somebody in the poetry world said to me recently about all the talents in London. And I thought, no, it's not. <laughs> There's plenty of talent in the north. And I think we need to, you know, nurture that. And um we've got a really lively scene here. You know, we like I said, we yeah. Are, our open mics are really busy. Um, For sure. You know, we work with the university as well. And yeah, I think, I think we've got some really good stuff to shout about. <laughs> That's awesome. I met, I met one of your writers, I think. I think her name was Georgie Woodhead. Oh, yeah. Georgie. Yeah. 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 She, was, she, was, she was great. I met her when she was the, uh, the young poet in residence for the Sheaf Festival. You did. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Georgie's, yeah, really very talented. She's only just turned 17 and she yeah. won BBC short story 
last year as well. So not only is she oh good for her. She yeah she she actually won the whole the whole the fight. You know she was shortlisted and and she won. So it was pretty amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah yeah it's really that is amazing. I think another good thing about having a network of young people is they inspire each other. So they'll that you know they'll be like I want to be like Georgie one day or whatever. And it's a really nice way of kind of getting people to see that what the potential is for them you know because they recognize other people that are not you know that different from them or not from a different place how has your writing been going in this odd uh isolationary time that we have been living through have you been writing have you been able to write yes and no uh, i have written a bit i've written a i did go through a little phase a little flutter of writing about three Three or four poems in a week which I thought was pretty impressive yeah then um, I have been quite busy as well and had a sort of back backlog of things to do and I think there's a really weird thing with time in the way uh, I'm sure you're experiencing it sometimes it feels like it's stretching and it's going on forever and then sometimes it, it's like an elastic band it's going the other way and yeah. um you know, I think I'll get back to that. And then it's been two weeks or something. And you think, How's, how has that happened? I've been getting other things done. So I think it's a bit swings and roundabouts. I think I've definitely had more thinking time and I've really enjoyed that aspect of, um, I think a lot of people are saying that. Um, a friend said earlier, it, it's a bit like, it reminded him of his festival days you know like when you when you're younger and you're just kind of milling around a festival <laughs> I thought that's a really nice way of putting it but you know like it, it because it, everything's so calm and peaceful outside and there's no pressure in the outside environment if you do go for a walk or a run or whatever it just feels like you're in a bit of a bubble um I think that's what I wanted to get across in the poem as well as it feels like we're in a really odd kind of bubble so in terms of writing, yes, yeah, no, but both uh, little spurts and then and then quiet periods. Yeah. Have you thought about how this period might affect your writing going forwards? Um, I think it definitely gets you thinking, um, like drop into a different um, kind of thinking level with your writing and and recognizing what time and space can give writing. I think like any. You know, most people, you know, I juggle a lot of things in, in normal life, if you like. And I think a lot of people, a lot of writers I've spoke to have spoke about how they've realised that, you know, that they're doing a lot more reading. They're doing a lot more thinking around writing or, you know, there's people starting novels that they've been, you know, meaning to do. So I think it's a reminder of there's times when I'm really busy and I think oh, I just I, I just can't imagine writing at the moment. And I think. This period has been a real reminder that space and time inevitably will lead to good things. You know, I mean, it does come back up, you know, the fire of writing comes back up and and you, you can kind of rely on that. But you just have to, I guess, when you go back into the real world, make some, some of the same sort of space where there's less uh, outside infiltration of everyday life. That was me interviewing the poet Vicky Morris. And now we're going to hear from novelist Monique Roffey. The park was open again till 4pm. Police cars patrolled around it slowly and wardens shouted through their loudspeakers, Get off your bike! Joggers everywhere shedding their sweat and breath. Tower Hamlets, London's poorest borough, 
a neighbourhood of mosques, synagogues, churches and even a Buddhist centre. Waves of immigrants over the last two centuries and many famous criminals and thousands of children kidnapped from the streets, deported to Canada and Australia to populate the ancient world called New. East London with its incomers, most recently the middle classes, just like her, heralding an era of avocado on toast, the Turkish shops now selling coconut kefir and actual artichokes, Ipalicis, a landmark of three generations, usually buzzing all day, every day, and the Roman with its barrows and off the back of a lorry clothes. All quiet now. The East End remakes itself again and again. She walked north up the towpath, gazing at the boats. Lorna, Rosie, one or two with for sale signs in the window. One man selling organic fruit and veg from his deck. The bloody joggers again, and people on bikes zooming past. A massive weeping willow, the canal water green with duckweed, and the skies raging, leaking acid sun. Inside, she was only emptiness and clamped down fear. High risk and all that, weak lungs. It happened when she was on the home stretch, walking down the street near the primary school with her busy, boiled-up misery, banging and clattering and people now out on the streets, people hollering, oh, for fuck's sake, for a split second. What the fucking fuck? Go the fuck away. She was trying to relax, goddammit, and then... In those split seconds, an eternal guilt. Thursday, of course, 8pm. I think I've got... I've been, I've been doing this on my own, which I need to and wanted to do because I'm high risk. Mm. Mm. And uh, I've just got to that stage today and yesterday where I'm fed up. Like I've, I've been on my own too long. It's like seven weeks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not that I've been on my own. I have talked to the odd person face to face and, you know, yeah, uh, and lots of online communication, but I'm a little bit like, okay, I'm done now. Yes. And I, I think the whole uh, nation must be feeling exactly the same. I think, I think so. I think we got to the magic fed up point because I, I had the same thing about, about a week ago. I started to just feel exactly like you. Like I'm, I'm just, I'm done with this now. So, have you been, have you been able to write during this time? Not really. No. I've, I mean, I think that's been one of the most interesting things about lockdown, is someone like me, and I'm imagining all writers who basically sit and focus a lot all the time. You're always online, always thinking, writing, thinking, writing. <clears throat> I've lost my focus. Or I find it like something that would take me a day now takes me about four days. Something that would take me three, you know, like I'm twice as long, taking twice as long to do things because I'm all over the place. I'm on social media. I want to listen to the news. I'm looking out for things like I never used to before. And um, yeah, I'm interrupted constantly by the news. The news feels like the most fascinating news I've ever heard all the time. What about you? Well, now I'm terrified about the writing that I've been doing over this period being shit. But <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, yeah, no, I've been I've been working on a novel and I've been relatively productive. I've also been finishing off my PhD thesis. That's that's been going well. I had 
I had, you know, what, four or five weeks just working on my PhD thesis every single day. And I, I made phenomenal progress on that. And I'm very happy with it. The novel that I've been working on, uh, it has not been in any way enjoyable, but I've been getting the pages written, you know, I've yeah. been, I've been churning stuff out. Uh, I think it reads pretty well, but I'm also finding it quite hard to, uh, I think to have balance and distance and to assess it accurately, I think. You know, I, I think do you it, find it's um, hard to care? I'm I'm wondering whether yes, that's the word. Is, yes. Do I care about this book anymore, given the nature yes. of the existential threat of life itself? I mean, especially mm. as I'm high risk. I'm like, I used mm. to really care about putting my creative energies into the pages of a novel because in my experience, at the end of the day, these novels tend to get out there in the world. They get published and they get read. So this feels like there's meaning and I used to really care about writing. Yeah. But right now, I'm a bit like, the only oh, thing yeah. I really, I've, I've, I've gone for long, long walks, like for me, two hour walks every night, every evening. Mm. And I mean, they've, they've been the most creative thing I've done in years, like connecting to nature, mm. looking at things, mm. discovering my neighborhood. Um, mm. And it's almost like all the energy I used to put into writing something has gone somewhere completely different. I was I was reading about the idea of of getting quality rest and how quality rest time is so important for uh, for doing quality work, particularly if you're doing sort of you know, high level knowledge work like like writing a novel. And I think it's very hard. It's hard for me anyway to get that quality rest time during this period you know you can't really distract yourself very well you can't get out and be with people you can't shift your environment it's it's a bit like a sort of you know this rolling ongoing slightly anxious stressy samey situation that you can't really dip out of and back into you know and then my writing is a part of that you know I go into the room the room next door and I sit down and write for a couple of hours and then there's not much of a rest from it yeah I think I think it's the dystopia, isn't it? It's dystopian what we've been going through. It's been, it's been nothing like we've ever lived through before. So, oh, I don't know. It's like being in a novel, isn't it? It's like being in a fictive narrative. So, what was it like, Monique? Yeah. Trying to release a novel in the lockdown. Um, I was going to have like Plan A was a big juicy messy literary bun fight you know like you know let's all get really pissed at the union club in Soho and sell a shitload of books and like it was going to be it was shaping up to be a great party and it was supposed to be on the 30th of March and like everybody I knew was coming and it was just going to be loads of fun and I was like yay yippee you know I couldn't wait thought this was going to be the best book launch I'm ever going to have so that was going ahead and on the 12th of March, I went up to Leeds to People Tree Press and we were talking about, because the Boris Johnson hadn't given his famous speech yet. That was the next day. And even on the 12th of March, we all said it's over already. So we cancelled it. Um, and instead, we did some online events. And I have to say that I've had some incredible support from other writers like really big name writers like David Nichols, the screenwriter, uh, launched my book 
and was bigging up my big on Twitter. And Nikita Gill, um, she and I had more than one conversation, one on launch day and one a week later on Instagram. And she's got like tens of thousands of followers. And then People Tree have got a really shit hot team of young people doing their social media. So they've been on it. And then I don't know, a few other things have happened. But it was just dystopian. I was having online interviews and conversations. And um, I've been on the radio. And, and then Bernadine Evaristo came forward on Rich, Richard and Judy started a book club. I don't know if you saw that yesterday. No, I didn't. Well, Richard and Judy have been back for a week with their book club. And Bernadine Evaristo uh, was invited on and asked to big up three three books, three lockdown books. And I she she put my book forward as one of them, along with Jacob Ross and another another writer. And I mean Oh, that's great. That's the most I mean, talk about somebody using their platform to yeah. put to help make things better for someone like me in my situation. And not just me, but a small press. Uh, who all might go under by the end of the year. We just don't know what the industry is going to look like by the end of the year. So with no bookshops open and with no festival dates in the diary, which we usually sell things over, you know, I had about 20 dates in the diary. Um, we don't know how, you know, we've only got, we haven't, we haven't got windows in which, you know, there are any shop windows in which to sell this book. Mm. So the economy of mm. the book for my publisher has been, like decimated the economy of the book for me because I was being paid for these gigs is has been decimated um speaking volumes um who are an amazing very proactive literary event uh, and tour organizers you know they got a grant to put my book on tour that grant has now been frozen I mean we hope that I might be able to go on tour next year but you just can't even beginning to think about next year today. It's just way too yeah. presumptuous. So yeah. this yeah. book that I spent years writing, and I also did a crowdfunder in September of last year to um, find myself um, good PR, and we hired FMCM. I mean, I did everything I could to get this book uh, read and seen and noticed and, you know, appreciated. And then this happened. Tell us about the uh, the piece that you wrote for Two Minute Stories. Yeah, so as I said, I've been going on all these walks and sometimes I'm just in sort of like a, a reverie, like quite empty-minded and just sort of staring at things and taking photos and I really look at things and so I get very absorbed and, and I think the, there was one evening when I was just so full of anxiety and so full of like me, 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 my, you know, so chewed up. And so I was walking around and I was sort of on my way home and uh, this clapping erupted. And I was like, what the fuck? Everyone, what's going on? What's going on? And I guess there must have been a, situ a time when I had forgotten about lockdown. I'd forgotten about COVID-19. In, in a way, what the story is about is... It's like I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten um, that there was there was even a problem that we had a different world, and so my reaction to walking to suddenly all this clapping, because I think I had my headphones on as well as listening to music, 
It's like, what, 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 what? And just the fact that I just didn't know what was going on for a split second, just spoke of, you know, having forgotten for a moment. Um, and I also early, early, early on had a walk with a friend and she was telling me something about her life. She was a TV presenter. And as I was listening to her and I was so wrapped up in her story, I said, oh, my God, Alison, you know, I actually for about 20 minutes or however long you've been telling me the story, I said, I said, I forgot. Hmm. So that's what the story is about. It's about having some kind of reprieve. I mean, in, in the fact that I was going, oh, shut up. Oh, shut up. Oh, shut up. Who were these people? To show impatience. It's so politically incorrect. It's so incorrect to be so sort of snappy. Um, but there's something about it that spoke of me having forgotten. Yeah. Little reprieve. A little reprieve. we've learned about connection and disconnection. Maybe we've learned about the importance of touch and intimacy if we needed to. Maybe we're learning about patience. Maybe we're learning about ordeal People of my generation from the Western world, we haven't had a lot of ordeals to live through, unlike previous generations. Not that ordeals are good things, but they are character forming. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. What you fight through builds your muscle. And we're fighting through something now, something previously unknown and unfamiliar. And dislocated and disconnected as we are, we're doing it together. Maybe we're seeing the world shift, seeing the world change. Ten days or so from the US election, as I record this. Maybe we're on the brink of a civil war. Maybe we're seeing a monumental geopolitical power shift away 
in the United States towards the East. Maybe society is unraveling in a David Mitchell cloud atlas kind of a way. Maybe it's not. Maybe everything's slowly getting back to normal, whatever normal is. Or maybe that normal's gone. Maybe that normal isn't here anymore. Maybe we don't quite yet know what the next normal is going to be. We'll find out, though, eh? This is a short little prose, a short little piece of prose that I bashed up called End. Everything ends with time. Time will end in time. Watches stop. Relationships crumble. The dog's tired heart slows to a creep. 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 Everything ends like it began. No, that's wrong. How could it be? The ending's inevitable, like the plot of a conventional film. You see it coming even if you don't know it at the time. You see the impending conflagration. You feel the schism schisming. But the beginnings, well, they're different, aren't they? You didn't see her till there she was, rosy-cheeked in the winter air and bundled up in wool, standing before you in a body made to fit like Duplo into yours. I didn't imagine the squirming ball of warmth until there he was, investigating strangers' ankles at a downtown bus stop, smile panting and sniffing for love. Didn't imagine that a year could be swallowed, turned inward like an abscess, an absence. And how does it end? Five years ago now, though it seems like a lifetime, you found a mottled brown dove tangled up in safety netting on the roof of an apartment building in Bangkok. It took a hundred snips from a bent-tipped pair of nail scissors as you cradled it in your hands to free it, and it calmed in your hold, its disrupted wings still, the heart of its body tensing and detensing and you left it on the balcony's edge, dishevelled and skewed and exhausted, for it to leave when it could. Four years ago, you stood on top of a miniature waterfall on the edge of a Hmong village, down the slope from Doisa Tep, feet in the flow, with a person you'd known for 12 or 13 hours, and felt her heart beat against yours. felt the warmth of her body, detensing and calm against yours. And if she'd had wings, you'd have clipped them free of their tangled netting too. You'd have held them in your hands, as firm and gentle as you could, to let her know that she'd escape her net. Three years ago, and two, one six months ago six months ago you took to running every day pounding pavement alone 
punishing your tendons in two short running shorts, communing with the dogwoods, the beaches, waiting for this odd abscess to pop. And where does it end? Where does it stop? Remember how you cupped his chest between your hands and held him in the sink and waited for the tap water to warm as you soaked the muck from his curls. Remember the smell of her hair, wet from the shower, as it met the minus temperature of a Wisconsin dawn, a day, or a year, or three ago.